Let me remind you of the names of these brothers that are with me on the panel. You can find their full bios in the conference program. I need not repeat such things here. But on my far left, or maybe it's your far right, I'm not sure what the significance of the directions are here, is Tim Keller. <clears throat> and now, if you do that for every one of them, there's going to be competition. <laughs> and then Vadi Bauckham. <laughs> well, we know who wins that one. <laughs> and Thabiti Anyabwile. And then let's have absolute silence for John Piper. <laughs> And Miguel Nunez. <clears throat> now, unless you were living utterly cut off from all news sources and the digital world, uh, you have to be aware of the very significant discussion that has taken place in the wake, especially of Ferguson and New York City and more recent events as well. It is important that we talk about these things, not least when we disagree on our perceptions of some of them. Uh, merely throwing brickbats and yelling at each other is not going to help. And as Christians, then we want to talk about these things with minds profoundly submitted to Scripture and eager to be reformed by the Word of God not least when our emotions are so heavily involved. And so TGC has been involved with sponsoring and co-sponsoring a number of public discussions airing these issues in a variety of cities. These continue. And in this conference, there are some forms and workshops, which I'm sure you have noted in the program, that deal specifically with racial issues and justice issues and we've tried to bring people from diverse backgrounds and um, perspectives together, including, including policemen and those involved in the judicial system. But in this panel, we want to do something a bit different. We want to paint on a broader canvas. That is to say, we want to think about justice issues, how Christians should think about justice issues, not just racial issues, but there are a lot of other justice issues too, poverty, consumerism, the white slave trade, um, many other things that could be mentioned, consumerism, um, corruption in politics, uh, any number of justice issues that, that really need a foundational way of thinking. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to try to talk about some of these things at a biblical theological level with clear implications and applications to some of the issues that we have been talking about. We won't agree on everything, and then our aim is to submit things to Scripture as best we can with love for one another and a deep, deep desire to bow to the Lordship of Christ. Let us pray. It is an enormous encouragement to remember, Heavenly Father, that you have promised wisdom to those who ask. And so we ask. 
we beg of you for wisdom to be corrected by one another in the light of your most holy word, that we may be more faithful stewards in the generation in which you have placed us. Guide our conversation, we pray, for we ask in Jesus' name, amen. First question, I need to say as well that this is not Don Carson asking a specific question to Thabiti or to uh, John or what, whatever. Um, th this is one where the questions need to be batted back and forth. Anybody can chip in and, and contribute, contradict, uh, advise, revise. Um, this needs to be a discussion, not a Q&A. Um, but the first question is, what are the biblical texts and biblical themes, theological themes, that should most control our thinking about justice, righteousness issues in our lives, in the church, in the time and place in the world where God has placed us. I'm just jumping right in. The, 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 uh, it's intriguing that in Genesis 9, God because all human beings are made in the image of God, God even holds animals responsible um, for killing a human being or for, uh, because human beings in the image of God, he says, I will require uh, their blood even of animals. And it's, it's also intriguing in James. In James, he's, uh, James says you shouldn't speak abusively, you shouldn't curse people because people who are made in the image of God. So uh, James can even talk about speaking harshly towards someone who is in the image of God. That, so the Imago Dei is foundational, I think, for talking about how do you treat people. If, if even cursing somebody is wrong because they're in, made in the image of God, or if even animals are held responsible in some way, I haven't quite figured out how God does that, by the way. Uh, <clears throat> and then it doesn't surprise me, here's the only other thing I'll mention, it doesn't surprise me that in Amos, um, in the beginning of Amos chapter 1 and 2, God holds the, the pagan nations around Jew, uh, Israel responsible for genocide, for uh, uh, imperialism, and for oppression and cruelty. These are pagan nations. They do not have the law of God. They don't have the Bible. And, but it's very clear because that they, it, it, it's very clear that God still holds them responsible for uh, justice for treating human beings with justice as beings in the image of God. So you can see the basis of uh, what we would consider uh, caring about people's rights, giving people what they deserve, treating all human beings as having infinite dignity in texts like that. That's just to get the ball rolling. And, and I would say um, that for me, when I think about that and try to put a finer point on it, uh, from a philosophical, for philosophical perspective, uh, that, that does, that gives us, that roots and grounds us in our understanding of why it is that people should be treated a certain way. But then I go to the second table of the law to understand how that's manifested, and which is what I think Paul does in, in Romans 14, um, you know, with, with, with this, you know, oh, no one, anything but, but love, and then what does he do? He sort of enumerates the second table of the law um, and, and so I think that we do need to have these, this philosophical overarching understanding of 
people having inherent dignity and value because they're made in the image of God, uh, but then when we sort of put feet on it and talk specifically about um, what, what would be right and what would be wrong in terms of the treatment of those people, we, we have to come to the moral law. We, we, we have to come to um, that, that transcendent moral code that God has given us um, and, and to which we're all held accountable. Just coming down the line, um, I like where these brothers have started uh, in the beginning and just prior to the um, Imago Dei creation, uh, we're told that, that God wants us to fill the earth, uh, to multiply, um, and in part that's to, that's to bring forth his glory. Uh, so Malachi 2.15 tells us why he established marriage, that he might have an offspring that would, that would bring him glory. Um, and so questions of, of justice are connected with questions of worship too, our, our proper relationship to God um, and, and our filling of the earth with his glory. That has something to do with human flourishing and how we treat other image bearers um, who, who themselves are, have been created to um, reflect the glory of God. Um, and so I'm, I'm with these brothers in starting in the beginning because I think there's such foundation laid for us in thinking about justice and its outworkings there. I would, I would just go up a level. I mean, I don't know where you want to start if you want really, you said foundation. So the person in the universe who has rights is God. He has rights. Justice is acting in a way so that God gets his rights. That is the most fundamental meaning of justice. So God acts in according with his rights. And if you say, well, what are God's rights? Any behavior that accords with the infinite value of God is a right behavior. And so ult ultimate rightness is behavior, thoughts, uh, feelings that are conformed to the infinite value of God. He has rights to be received by those. And so I think if we, if we start with man, even, even with the imago, uh, without saying that first, we, we probably will, will go skewed eventually in a manward direction, in a God-centered, I mean, a man-centered world. And so my, my, I want to I start, and, and I know Tim, who started the way he did, will be the one who most effectively relates the gospel to this issue by saying the gospel deals with making sure God gets his rights in punishing those who have offended him on the cross so that there can be mercy like this. So, but but the, the gospel will make no sense eventually if we haven't started with the righteousness of God is God's right to punish those who don't act in accordance with his infinite value. Do you agree with him on that? Yes. <laughs> Why? Yes. Um, he is correct. <laughs> I, a, more, a more interesting question would be, why didn't you start there? I, th I think I know the answer. It's one of the reasons uh, I like you. You, you. Just, you just... What? You, I, wanted, I, wanted, I wanted to leave you some room. <laughs> 
Miguel, do you want to correct these brothers? No, I just want to add a couple of different things. Yes. I, the way I see it, I see the character of God, of the God who is just and righteous, who gave us a law that is also just, and that law was violated. So the image of God got corrupted when the law of God was violated. And anything else that we see that is imperfect and unjust today is the result of that fall. And what God is doing uh, with us today is trying to redeem, or not trying, redeeming his image in, in mankind. But also I would think about loving God with all your heart, mind, and strength. If you love God, you should be loving everything that he loves. And we know from the Bible that God loves justice because that's part of what he is. And secondly, the Bible calls us to love our neighbor as ourselves and to treat that neighbor the way we would like us to be treated. So I think any degree of injustice is the result of that violation of that law and the corruption of that image. So I think all of those texts that deal with all of those aspects, I think are foundational to these issues. Well, let's pursue that one a bit farther before we come into the next range of, of questions. Um, how, how many of these fundamental issues are really well understood in our churches, preached in our churches, taught in our churches? By our churches, you expand that as far out as you like in your respective denominations, in TGC-related churches, in your own local church. I mean, has there been a failure to get across some of these found, lifting up the centrality of God and its entailments? I, I would say yes, there's been a, a massive failure in this regard. Man-centeredness is the order of the day. Uh, God-centeredness, one of the reasons that there are so many people who are so attracted to what's happening at things um, like the Gospel Coalition is this revival of God-centered thinking and the rightness of God-centered thinking. And, you know, the Lord's sheep know His voice. And when people hear God being magnified and glorified and God at the center and the gospel of God at the center, people are attracted to that. And one of the reasons that it's so attractive is because for the most part, people are being starved of it. Well, let me come into um, uh, a, a second uh, question. It's a tear down in some ways, but what are some of the reasons why devout Christians who believe the Bible and really think that they are bowing to Christ's Lordship can nevertheless disagree on, a, on an array of justice, social issues um, as strongly as they do. What are the reasons? They can be of many sorts. Well, one, reason is, is, one reason is different experience, first of all. If you're white, if you're black, you're going to have a different experience, just a different daily experience. And it's really fairly, I think it's normal for us to tend to universalize. That it, uh, the way we see things is the way it is. And, and so that's one, certainly, that's an easy one. 
I mean, I'm, that's not the only answer to your question, but certainly diff different experiences. Pri more, some people have had more privileged experiences. Some people have had less privileged experiences. That's one of the th reasons. Our, our theology also goes into this um, because, I mean, there's a reason that, for example, you know, Tim's wrong on baptism and I'm not. Um, <laughs> No, but in seriousness, though, I use that as an illustration to how people uh, can very much love one another and can very much be eye to eye on so many things, but because of uh, different theological presuppositions and different things that we sort of bring to um, our understanding of, of the text of Scripture, they lead us in different directions. And, and I think one of the one of the problems that we have is we don't allow for that in these discussions. Because if we're talking about issues like baptism, we see someone over here who's going in this direction on baptism, someone over here who's going in this direction on, on, on baptism, um, and, and it's, a, it's a distinction, it's a theological divergence. And we look at that and we go, we, we don't say that one of them is a good person and the other one deserves to be, you know, beaten or whatever, but on a particular issue that's so visceral and things that strike us in a certain way, we can see the same divergence that can be explained in the exact same way because of theological starting points and presuppositions, and all of a sudden now we say one person is unjust and another is just, when, when we're seeing a manifestation of the same truth. In some ways, your, sec your last question is connected with the previous question. Yes, it is. Um, and so you're trying to get us to mix it up a little bit here, and, and, and that's good. Um, <laughs> we, we might comply or we might not. Um, no, I, I agree with these brothers, and I, I guess what I would, I would want to say is um, certainly along with what they have said, I think it's true that when it comes to thinking through what the Bible says, about justice from God all the way down to the ethic to love, and I'm a risk over, over generalizing, but I don't think most Christians have ever been discipled in this area. I mean, what these brothers just did when you asked your first question and just sort of reaching into the Scripture and bringing out the second table of the law or reaching into the Scripture and reflecting on Imago Dei or reaching up a level higher and thinking about the, the rights that God has and bringing it down to, to justice. If, if we were to poll the room, my guess is, my guess is the, the majority of persons in here would say, I, you know, nobody's ever taught me to do that, to, to work through that so deeply and so quickly that on a panel I can recall that and work that through, or more importantly, in, in the face of an actual conflict, that, that rushes to the fore and shapes what I'm thinking and doing in that moment. Um, so we, I, I don't think the American church is very well discipled to think through justice writ large or justice in particular situations. And most of our discipleship has come through whatever political influences we have yes. had or whatever personal influences yeah. we have had. And so we're not in the first instance reflecting right. deeply on the scripture. Uh, and I think if, if we were, we'd still have different starting points sometimes and different places where we go different ways, but we'd at least be having the same conversation about what the book says. Mm -hmm. And often we're not having the same conversation. Yeah, I, I just want to build on what Thavita just said. There is no doubt that we are, <clears throat> we're listening to political voices 
and not thinking theologically about it. So for example, right now, I would say the basic liberal, politically liberal understanding of justice is the individual needs to be uh, protected from the society. The individual has to be free to live any way he or she wants to live, no matter what society or family or religion says. So we have to free. The conservative understanding of justice is actually that the individual has to be protected from the state, from the government, from regulation, from law. We've got to be free to, to live as... It, they're, they're very different, and, and they're both too thin, biblically speaking. They both, have, they both resonate to certain aspects of biblical understanding of justice, but if, if all you do is read the liberal websites or the conservative websites and, and you're, you're just completely immersed in that, and then suddenly as a Christian you come to the, 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 the Ferguson issue or the Staten Island, all that stuff, and you immediately are, instead of really thinking it out in a very uh, proactively biblical way, you are really just following the crowd your particular political crowd and not thinking that theologically. So I totally agree with that. It's one of the reasons you can definitely see it in the comments section uh, on, on the website, you know, on, our, on the, uh, the, the, uh, the, the stories that we put up there and the articles we put up there, you can just see in the comments section where the people got their ideas. They didn't usually come from the scripture, I don't think. Let me get, um, the more people I get to know, the more I realize how important worldviews are. And I think um, part of the problem is that worldviews are not just related to knowledge. So we could get a lot of knowledge from the Bible. The worldviews are related to emotions, experiences in life, family upbringing. And in dealing with people and in counseling, and even the people in my own congregation, I realized that after hearing the truth and knowing the truth, the knowledge, the intellectual aspect of it, people are still behaving in a different way than what you had been preaching to them. So I think one of the things we need to be aware of, of the of worldviews in our audience and try to preach the truth of the Bible, addressing the worldviews of the audience that you have in front. Um, and that's why I think having a clear vision of who you have, who are you ministering to, is important, among other things. Because the way Latin Americans look at life is not necessarily the same way North Americans will look at life, even when they are believers and even when they might be equally sanctified. And, and speaking of sanctification, I think just that. Sometimes it's degree of sanctification that makes a difference between one person and the other. Why don't you just take a couple of minutes and tell us some ways that Latin Americans, who can generalize about Latin Americans, but in some ways in which Latin Americans on the whole look at the world differently from North Americans. It's good for us to hear that. Sure. I'll just use some very simple everyday experiences. Latin Americans in general are very, um, they are not on time. <laughs> we are not on time. We're always late. And from the North American point of view, that's very selfish. We started the National Spanish Conference, which began as the pre-conference for this conference. We began at five minutes late. Hey, talk about flexibility. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I couldn't resist. Thank you for your love. <laughs> so we're always late. 
But we don't see that as anything selfish because it's part of the culture where you need to teach you, your people that there are other people who are on time who need to be, you need to consider them and be less selfish. It's a selfish problem. My wife is from New York and in many different ways she taught me that because I was, um, she would call me for dinner and I would be late 10, 15 minutes and I didn't think that was a big deal. But for her, who had cooked and had put the dinner on the table and it was warm, it was kind of selfish on my part not to go when she would call me that dinner was ready. That's just one aspect of it. Um, I could go on and on and on and give you so many of them, but certainly life is very different. Uh, we are not as organized as the Anglo mine is. And again, that doesn't become a problem for most of us. Traffic is chaotic in many of our cities. Um, and we don't, see, we don't see anything wrong with it. And yet you, you, you go there and you go crazy with the lack of organization. And yet you see the Latin Americans are very at peace with one another and, and even joking around those issues. So you can see, and you grow up there, and for you that's normal. And you could take that to racism, uh, level of income, education, and on and on and on it goes. And I think worldviews is, is one of the hardest things to destroy in people's mind. So preaching with that in mind and trying to create a biblical worldview, not just based on knowledge, but how you should act with your knowledge, um, the application of that truth is paramount. And I think that's where the application may vary from culture to culture. The truth that, you're being, that you are exposing is the same no matter where you are. But the application may have different colors. So I think that's important. As I recall the passage in James 1 which says, uh, let the rich man learn that he's like a flower in the field that dies and goes away. Whereas the poor man, let him, let him learn instead that, that he's anchored in God. He, he, he's, he's a child of God. He, he has an eternal bearing. And this is the same gospel, but it's applied in very different ways depending on, on the people that you're addressing. Um, and that means that the, the pastors likewise have to be sensitive to the particular blind spots of different persons in the congregation, especially when it's a really diverse congregation. It becomes very challenging. So what are some of the things then you think, you collectively think, that we're not listening, we're not discerning, we're, we're discerning poorly, or we're, 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 not, we're not thinking through carefully in terms of how to apply the Word of God to the way people think and act on, on a, a, broad, a broad front of justice issues? Whether this is answering your, your question, it, it's kind of, but I wanted to follow up on the previous question, which was, um, why are the differences? And then it came around to, we haven't been well discipled. And I'm, I'm thinking, um, if that's true, if, if these folks have either been not well discipled or the pastors haven't done it well, why have we done it well? And my, my encouragement would be, I, I'm hindered from tackling some things because I don't have the answers at the street level. So it's easy relatively, easy for me to talk theory. Um, and I say, well, now what, what about this, this, and this? I'm not sure what I think 
And therefore, I'm not even inclined to go to the theoretical level. Let's just talk about something I know. And so my guess is one of the reasons pastors don't take up justice issues is because they're not sure what to say at a certain level. And my encouragement would be, take it as far as you can take it. A lot of the Bible is clear on this. You could preach a whole message on Tim's first point on the Imago from Genesis 9 and James, uh, where you, you don't curse people creating the image, you don't kill them. You, that, that's, that's important to hear. <laughs> and you don't even need to apply it. Well, the, there's some killing that's right, you know, war and capital punishment, and well, we don't get involved in that. And, well, just, so my, my suggestion is that don't, don't not, don't fail to disciple your people at the levels that you can. That's one. And the other piece is cowardice. We, we haven't done it because we're afraid to do it. There are going to be people in our church who don't like what we say, and therefore we're scared to say it, and we should not be cowards. So those, those are two motives for why maybe what you said is true, namely that we haven't done as good a job as we could, that we're, we're not sure what to say at certain levels, and my advice is go to, the, go to the level you can that you see in the Bible, and, and second is we're cowards, afraid to talk about what needs to be talked about, and we, we have good reasons in the Bible not to be cowards. But I don't know whether that's this question. But that's that's so, all right. It's related. It's related. <laughs> what was this question again? <laughs> I, Vaughty's already going to answer. He got it. He remembers it. Um, I, I do, but I, I think also um, what I would what I would add to that is there is also this sense of going back to the worldview issue. There is this sense in which we've bought into the idea that experience trumps all, and therefore, if I don't have the experience, I can't even speak the truth I know because the truth of the scripture is not as powerful as people's experiences. And because we've sort of bought in to that false way of thinking, I think that there are a lot of people who are afraid of this, you know, idea that we'll speak something that's true scripturally. Uh, somebody will feel like we've been insensitive to their circumstance and experience, which trumps anything that we could possibly have said, because after all, God's knowledge is not nearly as significant as the knowledge of the person who is experiencing something on the ground. And so we just sort of step back in that fear. And I, I think we need to deal with that first in ourselves. But secondly, I think we need to help people understand that your experience doesn't trump anything. Your experience has to be brought into subjection. Take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ, every thought. And so I think we're doing ourselves and we're doing our people a disservice when we assume that because I haven't, you know, had their experience, um, I don't have anything to contribute on this particular issue. So I, I, I totally agree. We don't want to, you know, er, be, be arrogant and, and act like that doesn't matter at all. But we also don't want to commit the opposite error, which is acting like it's the only thing that matters. Uh, I, if I remember your question, <laughs> which I don't say it again. Well, I think the question would be, what are some of the issues that we are ignoring? In other words, right. what are some of the issues 
justice issues that we biblical justice issues that we're not talking about, perhaps we're teaching about. Uh, I, I go back, you notice this is what, what happens is it, when you get older, you remember the beginning and you remember the end, you don't remember the middle. Uh, in the very beginning of my ministry, I preached through the book of Amos using Alec Mateer's little uh, Bible Speaks Today book, the, back the, when it was one of the few Bible Speaks Today books. The Day uh, of the Lion. Day of the Lion. Yeah. And it, it was very striking how um, the book talked about the fact that basically in general, people with less means, poor people, have more trouble getting justice. They're not treated fairly. Um, and I just think that there, there, some societies are better than others at this, of course. But the simple fact of the matter is that's the case in our society too, that basically the, if you don't have money, you don't, you don't get equal treatment. Uh, the uh, Bill Stuntz's book, uh, The Collapse of the American uh, the collapse of American criminal justice, his main burden, he was an evangelical who passed away untimely, died of cancer, was a Harvard Law professor and considered the leading law uh, legal theorist on criminal justice, said very clearly, I mean, I'd say that when I read the book, it's, it's ma the main takeaway is if you don't have money, you don't, you don't get justice. Not so much, it, race of course is a big problem too because very often uh, race and, and econ e economics are tied together, but basically the, the less money you have, the less likely you are to really get a fair shake by the American criminal justice system. And he, he makes the case, I think it pretty much proves it. And what that means is, well, what, what do you do about that? It's, it's massive, but I, actually, it's an, I would say that's a valid application from preaching on the book of Amos because there's constant discussions about that. Uh, about the poor uh, being treated fairly, uh, being given the same hearing in the court as the, as the rich. And to say there's never been a society like that and ours isn't like that either. There's never been a society that has realized that because of sin. And that we ought to, be, we, we ought to realize that the poor in our community, uh, unless they get a lot of help, unless the kids that are born into those poor families get a lot of help, they're not gonna get a fair shake. They didn't choose to be born where they were born. Uh, children born into my family versus children born in a poor community in the same town have like, my children had a 300%, 300 times better chance of staying out of jail than anybody who's born there. And so it seems to me that when you're preaching, you can make those kinds of applications without directly saying, therefore, vote for this candidate or, you know, or, or, or th this law is wrong or anything like that. I, I do think we're afraid to even apply the truth at that level in our preaching, and we shouldn't. We shouldn't be afraid to do that. That's good. Amen. Yeah, the, the, you can go ahead and clap for Tim. <laughs> all right. Uh, the, the things we're missing in this conversation are the things that are not on the news outlets we're watching. They're the things that are not in the timelines on our Twitter feed, if our Twitter feeds are comprised mainly of people like us in our camp. They're the things that other people write about that we don't think about because we're preoccupied with certain sets of issues. Um, and so in order to not miss things, I, I think we have to have wider exposure. Uh, and we have to sort of afford to people uh, the came, same kind of generosity uh, with their differing perspectives that we would want uh, as we engage those kinds of circles. So um, in, in a lot of conversation right now, uh, when you raise a justice issue, the, whole, the word justice is almost seated over to the left as a liberal idea. That's a good Bible word, right? It has a lot to say about that. 
um, and, and, and words like liberal and conservative um, become the sort of imprimatur of who's trustworthy and who's not. You know, there's blowback on the later panel at 6.30. There's blowback about that panel because there's some experts on that panel who happen to not be Christian. Well, that doesn't mean they don't think well about justice issues. And that doesn't mean they don't have things to teach us about things that actually we haven't been thinking about. Um, and so in humility, I think we miss issues, a lot of issues, because either our pastors aren't preaching about them, uh, we're not naturally inclined to read about them, uh, our natural networks become kind of cul-de-sacs in which we sort of huddle up with other people who think more or less like us, uh, and we rob ourselves of, of a richer understanding um, that could be ours with, with more liberal reading. Um, what are some of those issues? Well, um, we, we talked here about criminal justice and mass incarceration. Uh, we can talk about poverty and, and issues related to poverty. Uh, we can talk about things like education funding and how that gets done and whether education dollars are distributed in ways that are, that are just. Um, we, we can talk about sex trafficking. Um, and uh, I mean, it's a whole range of things. We, sometimes it's like we fail to remember that we live in an unjust world. We're surrounded by injustice. Uh, and, and what we need is, is open eyes and open hearts to see more and feel more for the things that we begin to discover as we sort of move out of what's comfortable for us. I, 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 y'all didn't have to clap for me, that's all. I think, <laughs> I, I think um, one of the issues in my estimation, and, and this is something that I've just become more and more aware of, um, we have been in war for almost a decade and a half. People made in the image of God dying almost every day for the last decade and a half. And we don't even think about war. It's not one of the issues that we even raise. Every day, people in the image of God dying for the last decade and a half and we're talking about expanding our war efforts and there is no end in sight to our war efforts. And as Christians, what one, of the, one of the deafening silences out there is, again, I'm not talking, you know, Vietnam era, you know, hate the troops and all this other sort of, you know, kind of, I'm, not, I'm not talking about that. I, I, I'm talking about just maybe every once in a while going, can, can you tell us when we're going to end this? Can, do, do you have an idea? Do, can, you, can, you, can, you tell us, can you tell us why we're doing this? Uh, can you tell us what, what we're, what we're going to achieve, what we're going to accomplish? Can we take, you know? Um, and so I, I think the fact that we don't talk about that um, when people for the last decade and a half have been dying and killing uh, almost every day to me, that's a deafening silence. And, and it's a good example of um, the, the importance of having folks who are your conversation partners who aren't in your circle. I'm strongly resonating with what he's saying, and I'm thinking, man, I have a lot of friends who are on the so-called left who've been talking about that a lot for a long time, for a decade and a half, raising questions about the justice of these wars from the beginning. But you, you, he's absolutely right. If, if, if those folks aren't in your circle, well, that's a huge blind spot and, and yet, 
billions and billions of dollars. Yeah, but even, even, even those folks. Lives. Yeah, but even even those folks are usually not talking about it from the perspective of the image of God. And you know what I mean? They may be talking about it from the standpoint of, you know, power and imperialism and, you know, these sorts of things. But I'm talking about from a biblical people made in the image of God perspective, um, that, you know. And, 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 that's, and that's why we have to have the discipleship. Yeah. That's why we have to have this sort of basic theological orientation so that even as we're reading out with people who don't share our presuppositions, we can have that conversation without losing moorings uh, in the text. Well, it, just so we don't sound too dovish up here, um, I, I think we ought to take out Boko Haram. Just take them out. It's overdue. And when I, when I say we, I don't mean the Christian church. Though it is complicated, I, since I, I'm, a, I, I I'm was, one of these Christians, I, I was I was about to posse up and go with you, man. I was I thought you were I thought you meant that you know like right now, right we, now us. John Piper said, "Let's, let's go. go, y'all." You know, let's, let's go. Well, let's go. if nobody else will, I mean, there's 300 girls, and um, so anyway, yeah. I'm not into war. I'm just uh, I hate that kind of thing. And when it gets away and over and over and over, I think Romans 13 exists for something and that the, the police in the country and the military and the, and the national level carries the sword not in vain. And there are certain kinds of stuff that ought to just be reacted to with pretty swift violence. Well, would you say then, since we're talking about justice, would you say then that America is unjust for not going into another country and dealing with an injustice there? Or would you say that those countries there are being unjust because they, as the ones responsible, according to Romans 13, within their jurisdiction, have not addressed yeah, see, the issue. This is why which, I don't preach on this issue, because I'm not sure. But the answer is yes. This is a perfect oh. illustration of what I'm talking about. Somebody's going to come walk up to you after you say what you say and ask that question and say, well, I'm not preaching on that again. I'm not saying anything on war again. I don't have a clue. I, my guess is the answer is both. My guess is, and, and the latter more so than the former, the, the farther you are away from something, probably in, the less responsible you are. I base that on the parable of the Good Samaritan. I mean, he's responsible because the guy's there on the side of the road. If he's on the other side of the country, he's not responsible for that guy on the side of the road. He doesn't know about him. The more we know and the more opportunity we have and the more capability we have and the more we care, then our responsibility jacks up. And so I'm, I don't really know whether America should police the world. I don't know. But yes, why don't talk about it? Uh, well, you're talking about it now, and, and, and in, in, and, and, and brother, to your credit, you've been talking about justice issues for pretty much the life of your ministry, um, and unpopular justice issues um, with, with regularity in your churches, and so we give, we give God praise for that. Um, here's why I think that's an important question. Here's why I'm glad he asked it and why you're saying, I don't know, and we're having this panel because um, the proximity argument for me is, is limited as a response mm -hmm. to that kind mm -hmm. of question. Mm -hmm. and, and here's why. Uh, I think if we, if we fall too easily on proximity, we actually fall into complacency. There are things we ought to know about. There are things we ought to be learning about. There are things we ought to be engaging 
if we're going to, in fact, bear credible witness where we live and in increasingly wider circles, right? Now, that's not to argue we have responsibility on an individual level to, to posse up and go fix Boko Haram. But we do have responsibility on an individual level if we're going to love our neighbors and love our enemies to know something about them, to know something about the world and have a posture that leans into these sets of issues. I would answer yes to both of your questions. What was the yes, question? The question was, is it, is it a justice issue and does the, state, the United States have some responsibility with regard to Boko Haram? Or is it a matter that inside of a government and a country, it only gets policed there? I, I want to argue yes, as you said, the latter, the second being more obviously yes. But I want to argue the first, the first one yes as well. The, the, this country's foreign policy vis-a-vis -vis Africa has been atrocious atrocious from, from, the, from the participation in the slave trade all the way down to its silence on apartheid, coming all the way forward to how it's dealt with famine. And now, the one exception of that, ironically enough, is Bush, who, who had a pretty good policy with regard to AIDS and things of that sort in Africa. But, but otherwise, it, it's been atrocious. Meanwhile, a president like Clinton could go and mediate in the troubles in Ireland, for example, or, or we could take some posture with regard to troubles in Bosnia, Herzegovina. This is a justice issue. And, and, it, and it's a parity issue. And, and it's, a, it's, a, it's a concern that if we're concerned about, we, we want to grow more and more to be impartial in our concern about these things. And we need to advocate that in our, in our government. So yeah, I think it is a justice issue for us to face. And then, then I'm slowing down because I don't know all the solutions on the ground. But at least at that point, I'm going, yes, and it's a justice issue in Nigeria and its government and its false application of the sword. Um, so within the country as well. Yeah. I, go ahead. Go ahead. No, please, Cindy. I, I, I have a more top level. Go ahead. Respond. I have a okay. more top level thing to say. This, and this is one of those areas where there is just brotherly disagreement. Because I would argue that as, as Americans, um, our, government, our government officials have a jurisdiction to which they're limited. And that jurisdiction is the protection of our country and our borders. And it is not the job of America to go and police the world. And once you start down that road, what you do is a number of things. First, all of a sudden, you are disrespecting sovereignty around the world. And we don't want to disrespect sphere sovereignty. That's one of the problems we have in America. The sphere sovereignty of the government is overstepping its bounds into the sphere sovereignty of the family and the sphere sovereignty of the church and so on and so forth. And so there's the question of sphere sovereignty. And the other issue is how do we determine the level at which injustice has to exist somewhere else in the world before we then go in and say, we are crossing your borders to make you just. Um, from my perspective, that's dangerous. I don't want to give any government the right to cross another government's borders to make them just. Yeah, so can we go back and forth just a little bit? And I know Tim wants to get in with and correct us both. Um, <laughs> But, but not on baptism. Um, you know. <laughs> no, that, that's really what I wanted to bring up, actually. <laughs> so, so I'm glad for this conversation because it gets to model how friends 
differ, can have so much in common, and then begin to tack left or right. Uh, and I'm glad for the opportunity to say publicly that Vody and I are friends. We've ministered together in the gospel. Uh, we've served together. We've traveled together. It's just in case anyone who has mistaken our different views have mistaken it as we are somehow feuding. Uh, this is my dear brother in the Lord, and uh, I love having these conversations with him because he's honest. Um, to your question, I think if we take an isolationist, protectionist policy, it's ultimately going to be self-defeating. I think, I think the history of, of diplomacy has, has proven that. So there's some sense in which, for the public good, the, the country has to take an interest in international affairs and to engage that. And, now you, I, and I never said we didn't. No, no, that's, yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. And where, where we begin, I'm a non-interventionist, not an isolationist. Okay, so where, 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 we, begin, where we begin to tack apart is, is this question of intervention. You've already given one answer to that question in your comments, and that is where the actions of another country infringe upon the welfare and the benefits of American citizens. Okay, so we, we completely yes. agreed there, yes. right? Well, now, I want to add some categories to that. Okay. Okay, so one category I think we want to add to that is, say, genocide. We're back then to, as a Christian, thinking about people being made in the image of God, the, 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 the value of life being incalculable, and that can be taken at such scale that actually the loving thing to do, and I love the way Dr. King defines justice, he says in, in his 1955 Montgomery bus boycott speech, he has a line in there, he says, justice is love correcting everything that revolts against love. And so the loving thing to do is in fact to intervene on behalf of those persons who may, maybe been slaughtered by their own government. It would be unjust to stand aside and to watch that happen. And so I would argue that's grounds for intervention. Yeah, um, but but I, I think there's a categorical error here. You, there's an excluded middle. There's a fallacy in your argument because the, the assumption is we either watch it happen or we send the most powerful military in the world across yeah. other people's borders. Yeah, I, there's a lot of steps between there. I, I absolutely agree. I'm not, so I'm not assuming the excluded yeah. middle. I absolutely, yeah, yeah. You make an explicit something I was assuming. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There, and, there's a lot of so steps. In, a lot a, of diplomacy yeah, happens. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Um, and, 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 helping, and helping neighbors do that. Helping, and helping neighbors to do that yeah. as, as well, yeah. right? So, so when we look at, for example, ISIS, and everybody that we got to go get ISIS, and why aren't we getting ISIS? You know what my question is? Turkey has a half a million man army. Why aren't they going to get ISIS? All, all good questions. And, and why aren't we, you, you, you see what I mean? And I, I think we, we got to, we, we, that, that, that middle, that middle is where yeah, so, so the, first button the, the, you push, be the first button you push is not the red one. Amen. Right? right I'm going to stick my nose in here. Amen. So, so Amen. with you on that. Amen. So, so that one or so, two others can get involved in the conversation? <laughs> okay. All right. All right. Later. 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 Go ahead. Go, go ahead, Tim. Now about baptism. <laughs> now for our last few minutes, I want to turn the whole thing in another direction. Um, uh, I, this has been useful. It's, it's important to hear Christians who take Scripture seriously, try to think things through from fundamental principles and get at least some meeting of mind on, on some of these issues. Um, confession is good for the soul. I have a son in the military, so I've tried to think about these things quite a bit. Um, but, but matters of just war theory are not easy. They are not easy. And if the only alternative is pacifism, it seems to me you're stepping away from a fair bit of scripture. Uh, but the, that doesn't mean that any of it is easy. 
Um, but I want to turn the whole thing for the last few minutes in another direction. How do such issues of justice, as important as they are and as heated as they are in many of our circles, how are they rightly tied to a rich, thick understanding of the gospel? There are a lot of things can be said there because it's not just one kind of answer that you give. How should they be tied to the fundamentals of the gospel at the heart of our preaching Jesus Christ and Him crucified? My mind goes pretty quickly to, is it Romans 3, 21, 26? I think Leon Mars, it may have been Mars, called the most important paragraph in the Bible um, where Paul entertains um, the fact that God has left some sins unpunished until Christ. And, and in the gospel, in the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ and the resurrection, um, God is just and the justifier of those who trust in him. That, that means a couple of things. One, that whatever injustices that we talk about in the world, they are a fact accounted for uh, in, in God's either wrath on the unrepentant or accounted for in the punishment of his son as a substitute for sinners. It also means at least a second thing, that all of these justice issues that we, we talk about that live far off, um, well, they come home most pressing in terms of our personal sin and our personal accountability and our personal failure to give to God what is his right. Um, and so the, the justice issue that we all individually have to most be concerned about is our own sin before God, robbing him of glory and obedience that he's due. And we will either give an account for that in his judgment or we will either escape in his mercy uh, through our faith in Christ who has given, given us himself as a sacrifice for sin. Well, the gospel is the message that can change the heart and the mind of a person. And unless that takes place, I don't think anything is gonna change. Education doesn't have that power. Technology doesn't have that power. Uh, we saw that after the first world war world. Uh, the humanists got together and they thought we learned the, the, the hard way, so we will never see this again. And then a few years later, we have the second world war. Um, so the gospel is the only hope for mankind. So I think it's directly related to the issues of injustice of any kind, of any nature, of any level. Without it, they will, there is no hope. Uh, and I think that's why we need to keep preaching the gospel to change people's minds and heart. But we need to challenge those people uh, so that when they go out in society, they will know what it means to be the salt and the light of the world. Because I think that's, um, that's one of the problems that we have taught people what the gospel is and how you get born again. But then we haven't taught enough about how would you live that gospel as a physician, engineer, whatever you are, plumber, painter. So I think it's, there's a direct relation between one and the other. Thank you. I, I be, the, the, gospel, the gospel meaning um, propitiation through substitution refuses to pit holiness and judgment against love and mercy. They, uh, in, on the cross, the, both, of those, b both of those brilliantly coincide and shine forth. And I do sense that most, mo most political theories, whether it has to do with foreign policy, whether it has to do with criminal justice, 
they are they do tend to either move toward the acceptance a little they either veer toward the antinomian or they veer toward the moralistic and legalistic and if you really have a, an understanding of the gospel say we are not going to choose between those things uh, it, then it gets it gets more difficult frankly but but what I loved about, I thought was very instructive about this, was that there's really the, there's good theological grounding um, for uh, for everybody's what everybody was saying up here, and that's the reason why you just can't get dovish or hawkish. I don't think as a Christian, you just, you can't just get um, you know relativistic and say, look, everybody's got to be free to live the way they want, or become moralistic and you overdo virtue ethics or you overdo individualism. I. I really do think that, that the, the gospel actually forces us to come together as a community and, and honor all the different aspects of God's attributes and all the different aspects of theology and not just, I think, reduce and, and uh, oversimplify. And that's what I think almost all political parties tend to do right now is they oversimplify. And, and the gospel explains why it matters. The gospel is the only thing that explains why it matters. The only thing that explains it adequately. Because Christ died for a people. We have the adoption as sons. And so now because of the gospel, I have the ability to look outside of myself and see the imago dei in other people. And, and see the fullness of the reward for which Christ died and how significant that reward is to him. And that makes those people significant to me. And that's when I began to think about this from a right perspective. It's no longer an exercise of power. It's no longer an exercise of even appeasing my own conscience. It becomes an exercise of me acknowledging the reality of our oneness in Christ and acknowledging the reality that I have a vested interest in you as another member of the body of Christ because I desire for the body to be nurtured and treated properly. The gospel is the only thing that gives us that. Um, the gospel unleashes in the world a commitment not to live for justice, but to live for more than justice. Justice is minimalist. A life devoted to treating people as they deserve is, a, is not a Christian life. God in the gospel treated us better than we deserve. That is not justice. We don't get justice in the gospel. God got justice in the gospel. We don't get justice in gospel, we get grace. And he unleashes on the world a people in churches and then spilling over out of churches who treat each other way beyond justice. You, you shouldn't walk through the day or through your life thinking, how can I be just? How can I be just? How can I be just? You should walk through the world. How can I be gracious? How can I be loving? How can I be kind? How can I love my enemy? How can I go the extra mile? How can I, when I am sued to go one mile, go two miles? When I'm sued to get my coat, give him my cloak as well. The, the gospel unleashes way beyond justice. So Christians shouldn't be known mainly as the justice people. That's minimalist. You start there and then you go beyond. So Christ will be known in the culture when we treat people better than they deserve, not as they deserve. Amen.